Um, if you're like me and Anne, we like to, we enjoy going out to eat and eating good food. But when you go out to eat, the food that you are able to ask for is largely determined by the restaurant you're going to, right? So I really like, um, maybe I'll put it this way. My least favorite food is American food. <laughs> um, I love eating what we sometimes call like ethnic food, uh, like Indian food or Middle Eastern food, uh, other type of Asian food like Thai food, things like that. Um, and so, you know, if I'm at a restaurant, imagine myself at a restaurant and I'm ordering, can I get a you know, nice bowl of tikka masala or red curry or maybe uh, uh, pad praksad, Thai food, something like that, a nice shawarma sandwich. Um, and the person responds, uh, sir, this is a Wendy's. <laughs> you know? Unfortunately, Wendy's does not have those sort of foods. So when you go out to eat, your, what you're able to order is largely determined by the menu, right? They give you the menu. If you go to uh, the Cheesecake Factory, you'll have a menu the size of a small novel. Um, you gotta, you know, there's quite a plot there in that, in that menu as you read through it and you're, you're tracking the items. I mean, their menu is ginormous. It's insane. Um, not a fan of Cheesecake Factory. Um, but the, the, the reason for my illustration this morning is to say this. What, similarly to how what we ask for at a restaurant is determined by the menu, what's available to us. So when we come to a book like Colossians, it opens up with this prayer from Paul. We learn something about the gospel resources available to us by looking at what Paul asks for in the gospel. So what Paul prays for, the Colossians, indicates something to us about what is available to us in the gospel. And the response that is expected is not, sir, this is a Wendy's, but this is a gourmet buffet. And as Sam comes down the aisle, I feel like I need to like tap into my, my Sam. Like, I feel like that's something Sam would say. It's a gourmet, the gospel is a gourmet buffet. Okay? <laughs> so... Well, Paul prays, though, teaches us what's available to us in the gospel. We get to learn something by what he prays for. And it is, in fact, a gourmet buffet. It is not a Wendy's. So what we're going to learn in this passage is essentially this. As we see Paul's prayer, we're going to learn of his desire for the Colossians. His prayer will, is reflective of what he longs to see filled out in the Colossians. And it is this. Paul desires that the Colossians would bear the fruit of the gospel, the same gospel that originally bore fruit among them. Paul's prayer is that the Colossians would continue to bear the fruit of the gospel, the very same gospel message that originally came to them with Epaphras and bore fruit among them. And already in the letter, we should keep in mind that even as he gets into this prayer for them, his desire for them more than a desire, but, a, but intercession before God, um, that he already likely has the false teaching in view. In other words, when he says, I want this for you, I want you to, to hold fast to this gospel, this gospel that will bear fruit among you, it's in contrast, in other words, to the false teaching. He wants them to be assured, in other words, that the gospel is the gourmet buffet, that the gospel has the resources to 
supply all that they need, spiritually speaking, so to say, to actually bear the fruit that they need. And so in this uh, the opening of the letter, it's, a very, it's very traditional of an epistle of that time. Um, in a letter at that time, you would begin by, uh, with, a, with a greeting, by identifying who you are, who your recipients are, the audience, but then also enter into a thanksgiving and a prayer. And that's exactly what we have here, is we have in verses 3 through 14, we have his thanksgiving, what he thanks God for in his prayer, and then we also have his, the actual content of his prayer in verses 9 through 14. So again, you might think of it this way. In verses 3 through 8, we have why he gives thanks when he prays. And then in verse 9 through 14, we have what he prays for when he prays. So the why he gives thanks when he prays, and then the what he prays when he does, in fact, pray. And so that will serve as kind of our two main uh, stopping points in our message today as we look at both of those. The first will be fruitfulness demonstrated. The fruitfulness of the gospel demonstrated as he goes back to the past and he sees, look at what the gospel initially did among you, how it bore fruit among you, past tense. And then as he moves on to the content of his prayer going forward, it will be the fruitfulness of the gospel anticipated. So fruitfulness demonstrated in why he gives thanks when he prays, and in fruitfulness anticipated going forward as he actually prays for them heading out into the future. And so looking at fruitfulness demonstrated, what he saw in the past, how the gospel bore fruit in the past, we might summarize these verses this way, that Paul thanks God when he prays for the Colossians, because the gospel, which they originally heard, which Epaphras originally delivered to them, that gospel has already borne fruit among them. Paul thanks God when he prays for them because its fruitfulness, the gospel's fruitfulness, has been demonstrated. It did already bear fruit among them. So let's reread verses 3 through 8. Paul says this, We, including Timothy here, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since, for this reason, this is why we thank God, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this gospel, of this message of, of Christ, you have heard before, you've previously heard this message in the word of the truth, that is the gospel. This gospel has come to you as indeed it's, it's come to the whole world and it's bearing fruit and increasing, just as it also bears fruit among you since the day you first heard it and you understood the gospel, that is the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it, where? From Epaphras, who is our beloved fellow servant. Epaphras is a faithful minister of Christ, serving you. He's a minister on your behalf. And he's made known to us your love in the Spirit. So again, Paul thanks God. We see why he thanks God in his prayer here. He thanks God when he prays for the Colossians because the gospel which they originally heard has borne fruit among them. It has proven fruitful among them. And that's reason to thank God. And let's just stop before we go any further, though. Even when we say that the gospel bore fruit among them, we want to make sure we all understand what is meant by gospel. That word gospel that he uses, it means good news. Verse 5, 
The gospel is an announcement that would have been made, like it comes from military language at times, where when you went out to conquer an enemy and you have a battle, someone would come back and they would proclaim the good report, the good message, the good news, the good announcement that victory has been achieved. And so it's not a command of something for us to do. It's not a good command, although scripture has good commands. But the gospel is, is, is ultimately, it is principally a good message of something that has been done for us on our behalf. We learn something of what is meant by the gospel here when he equates it with this idea of the grace of God in verse 6. You heard it as the grace of God in truth. Or he talks about it that it provokes a response of faith in Christ. In other words, faith is this idea of trusting. It's relying on someone else. It's not something you do, in other words. Faith is the opposite of works in that respect. It's not something that we earn. It's not something that we perform. But it's something that we receive and we trust what someone else has done. And even if we could go throughout the whole scripture to think about the gospel, of course. But if we just locate ourselves within the book of Colossians... Even in this passage here, at the very end, he's going to talk about how God has qualified us to share in the inheritance. This Old Testament language is the land promise, but this future promise that we have of being participants in his kingdom, of the new creation. We've been delivered, we've been rescued from a domain of darkness, this kingdom of darkness, and we've been translated or transferred now into the kingdom of the beloved son, Jesus Christ. And this Jesus is the one in whom we have redemption. This, this word of, uh, that would have conjured up this idea of s- slaves being purchased out of their slavery. We've been purchased out of slavery. We've been ransomed, redeemed from slavery to sin. And now we actually have forgiveness of sins. Or elsewhere in the book, uh, the passage that Sam's going to preach next week, he talks about how the gospel, what Jesus has done, is reconciling us to God. That our, 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 our natural condition as human beings post-fall, after humanity has fallen into rebellion, is that we are hostile to God. He says that in verse 21, that we were alienated and hostile in mind. We were doing evil deeds. We were opposed to God. We were enemies with God. But Christ has now reconciled us. He's taken this relationship of enmity and hostility, and now he has reconciled us to God by his death. Or later in the book, in chapter 2, he's going to say that Christ canceled, in chapter 2, verse 14, he's forgiven us of our trespasses, canceling the record of debt that stood against us with all of its legal demands. He nailed that record of debt to the cross, triumphing over all authorities, principalities in the cross. So the gospel is fundamentally a message about what God has done through the person of Jesus Christ to save all those who trust in Jesus. It's the message, not that we have any, we don't have anything to offer God to sort of uh, earn a performance before God and to uh, bring ourselves into proper relationship with him. Remember, we are hostile, but God in Christ is doing the reconciliation. He's forgiving our sins. He's paying for our trespasses. He's taking the record of debt that we have. Our sins accrue a debt before God, a God who is holy and just and in his righteous judgment will punish all sins. He does not let any sin go unpunished as Exodus says when God declares who he is. But Christ has taken that debt for us. And when he was nailed to the cross, it's as if our sins were nailed to the cross 
with him and paid for. And that is the message that has come to them. That's the message that, that, that comes to you this morning. If you're a believer, you keep believing that message. If, if you've never placed your faith in Christ, that's the message that was just preached to you. And we call for you to believe that message as well. And that's the message that came to the Colossians. They heard that gospel of grace, that gospel of, of, of the good news about God's grace. In other words, it's not earned. It's something that he's lavishing on us, despite the fact that we've done everything not to earn it, that we don't deserve it. What we deserve is God's wrath, but what he gives us is grace. And that's come to them, and it's bore fruit. You see this, this fruit that it's born in verses 5 and 6, when he says that we heard what did we hear about you when, you when we heard you believe the gospel? It's that you had faith in Christ, love for fellow believers, the saints, and this was all because of a hope that you had laid up for you in heaven. This is kind of the, the, the triad that's common to Paul, right? Faith, hope, and love. It's a way of kind of summing up Christian virtue. And so it's produced in them faith, hope, and love. And so it, the gospel bore fruit among them, um, I'm uh, currently, for example, I'm currently, uh, we, we have an ash tree in our front yard. If you've been to our house, you know we have that tree in our front yard. But like half of it is dead. And so I've been kind of like, you know, what should I do with that? Am I able to cut off some of the branches that are dead? And maybe this thing will still be alive. Well, my brother-in-law, who knows a little bit more about these things, apparently, he told me, hey, that tree is a goner. Like it's got a disease in it. There's like some sort of ash tree disease that they can get, and he's basically like, let's just cut that thing down. So he's gonna come over on Tuesday, they're coming into town, and we're gonna cut the tree down. But I'm thinking, I kinda like having a tree in my front yard, and so maybe, this would be kinda fun, what if I plant an apple tree in my front yard? And because you have to cross-pollinate, you need two apple trees, apparently. So I'm thinking about possibly getting some apple trees and putting them in, putting them in the front yard to have some apples. I think that'd be fun. But with that, you wanna do your research, right? Because the, the fun of having an apple tree is that it actually grows some apples, okay? So I, I, if I do that, I got to think through, I got to research, you know, what type of, maybe some of you know, and you can come talk to me and help me out. But you got to do your research to make sure that if you get an apple tree, there's probably different types of apple trees, and you got to get them at different stages of development, um, so that, and maybe you got to prune them or do certain things with them so that they actually bear fruit, Okay? And what Paul is saying here is when I look at you guys, Colossians, when I look at you guys, I see that the gospel did in fact bear fruit among you. Okay, some of you are into gardening and you know that certain, certain methods don't prove effective. And other ones you've tried and you've tested, they prove effective. You know that those methods worked. Okay, and so Paul likewise, as sort of using this gardening, this agricultural imagery, says, I see what the gospel did among you and it did in fact bear fruit. You'll notice some of the other ways that Paul is commending the gospel to them. This is all a way of Paul commending the gospel, saying this gospel bore fruit among you. Okay? He says, look at what it's done in your own life, how it's transformed you, it's changed you. This, this likely Gentile audience who worshipped idols and, and were caught up into all this sort of uh, false religion and how it's actually brought them to the truth. He says in verse 5, he says, this is what you heard beforehand. In other words, it's not some new teaching. This is, this is the gospel, the very message that goes back to the person of Christ. In contrast to this new teaching that they're now uh, facing, that this kind of new kid on the block. 
This, is the authentic, this gospel is the authentic thing. It goes back to Christ himself. He calls the gospel the word of truth in verse 5, or the, the grace of God in truth, as we saw. This language of truthfulness, it's a, it's a message of truth. It's God's faithful message. And it bears fruit not only among them, you'll notice, but in verse 6, he also wants them to see how it's bearing fruit across the whole world, which gives it additional validity. This isn't just some like local belief that they have, but this gospel is bearing fruit. It's having effectiveness in transforming people's lives across the whole world. It makes me think of, in the early church, one of the arguments that some of the early apologists of Christianity would would make is they would say, look at how our faith transforms people who were once pagans, they were once into all sort of terrible lifestyles, and the gospel as it's gone across the Roman Empire has transformed people. That was one of the arguments that the early church made uh, in commending the Christian faith. And then he also, in verse 7, commends Epaphras to them. Now, I don't think he's holding up Epaphras uh, for his own sake, uh, but he's holding up Epaphras as a way of then commending the message that Epaphras brought them. So he calls Epaphras a fellow servant, a co-laborer, a co-worker with Paul. He, he said, if they have respect for Paul, he kind of brings Epaphras into that circle. He calls him a faithful minister. He's a minister of Christ on their behalf. He says, listen, this, this guy has served you well. He's been faithful don't divert from the gospel that he taught you. And I think similarly, as we, as we seek to apply this to our own lives, we can reflect similarly how these, how these attributes of the gospel can bolster our faith, our assurance in the gospel's ability to continue to bear fruit among us. That we look at our own lives, um, especially for those of us who are maybe saved later in life, and this is even more obvious, you can see how the gospel has transformed you. Or for those of us who were saved at earlier age, how the gospel preserved us from even heading down roads that we could have otherwise gone down. But we're able to see the gospel actually change people or change our fellow church members. Uh, it's a gospel that, we have, that, that, goes, that goes back to Jesus, as we said. It, 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 it's not some new teaching, some new thing on the block, but it has uh, authenticity from its historicity. Um, we see that it bears fruit across the world. So sometimes as Americans, we can kind of be very American-centric and just think about what's going on in our country, but it's good to broaden out and see how the, what has the gospel done across history and across other parts of the world, that the gospel is bearing fruit among people outside of our own immediate context and our own immediate time. And then we even look to some of the leaders. As, as Paul commends Epaphras, we can think of people, this, not, not all of these hold uh, true 100% because we know that there are Christian leaders who have made a mess of their faith and are not people that we would want to commend, but we can also look back across history or across our own lives and we can see people who have preached the gospel to us and those people are worth commending. Those people are trustworthy and we, 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 we trust them even as they delivered the gospel to us. They've served us faithfully on our behalf. And so that's the first thing that Paul wants to do in verses 3 through 8 is he wants to show them the fruitfulness of the gospel that's already been demonstrated among them. The second thing he wants to do though is he wants to show them that this fruitfulness is still to be anticipated. And so this is where he prays for them and we see what he prays for them here. That they would continue to bear the fruit 
produced by the gospel. And there's some interesting links between the second paragraph and the first paragraph. Some links between verses 9 through 14 and verses 3 through 8. Uh, First of all, you get this repetition of the word here. So in verses 3 through 8, Paul talks about how he has heard of their faith, uh, the gospel that they heard, verse 5. Verse 6, since the day that they heard it. And then he says, just as you learned it. And then in verse 9, he says, since the day we heard. So there's there's this repetition of hearing. Effectively, what he's saying is, since I heard that you heard the gospel, I've been giving thanks for you. And so he's connecting what he's about to say to their hearing. I've heard, I'm giving thanks because I heard that you heard. And then there's also this repetition of bearing fruit. So in verse 6, he talks about how the gospel, when it came, it bore fruit among them and it increased. Notice those words, bearing fruit and increasing. And that exact language shows up then in his prayer for them in verse 10. When he prays that they would be bearing fruit and increasing. And so that's the connection between these two. Just as they have heard the gospel, he wants them to continue in that gospel. And just as it bore fruit among them in the past, he prays that it would continue to bear fruit among them. And of course, this should assure them. As this prayer, as they hear this prayer, they should feel assured that this gospel that did indeed bear fruit among us, yes, it has the power to continue bearing fruit among us. And so, we see how, let's read actually verses 9 through 14, just to get that back onto our mind. And so from the day that we heard that you heard and believed the gospel, from that day we have not ceased to pray for you. And we have not ceased asking this, this is his prayer, that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. With this result so as to walk, that is, live in a manner worthy of the Lord. That is, a a way that is fitting to this new lifestyle. Fully pleasing to God. And then he gives four participles, okay? Four I-N-G words, in other words, that then show us what it looks like to live in a way that's fully pleasing to God, to live in a way that is walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. The first is this, bearing fruit in every good work. The second is increasing in the knowledge of God. The third is being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience. And then the fourth is with joy, giving thanks to the Father. And this Father has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so just to unpack that argument again, what Paul is arguing here, what, what is he praying for them? He is praying that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That's the central point of his prayer. How are they going to bear fruit? It is by being filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And it's this, he says, so as to, with the result that, they're going to walk worthily. Not that they live in a way that is like makes themselves worthy, but that word worthily, as Paul uses it, is this idea that it, it fits. It's appropriate. They're going to live in a way that fits. They're going to be fully pleasing to God. Now, when Paul talks about 
being filled with the knowledge of God's will, spiritual wisdom, and understanding, I think what we want to make sure we understand is that he's not just talking about head knowledge here. He's not just concerned. He talks about knowledge puffing up in 1 Corinthians. He's not just concerned with sort of cognitive details like a textbook that we've imbibed. He is talking about what we sometimes at Crossway refer to as our functional theology. So not just what we confess, our confessional theology, not just what we have written down on a piece of paper maybe, or we can regurgitate, but when it actually, when the rubber meets the road, what does it actually show we really believe deep down to the core of our being? I was uh, listening to a TED talk the other day about one of the uh, individuals who was on that famous flight. Uh, I think they made a movie of this, like the pilot Sully who landed in the Hudson River in New York. And he was on that flight and he survived. And just hearing him talk about it, he talked about some life lessons that he learned from that flight. But the idea being it wasn't just you know, textbook knowledge for him. Um, it, it gave him a whole new perspective on life, having that kind of near-death experience. And one of my friends who uh, had leukemia, he kind of talks about this way as well, just having that near-death experience. It, it, it's, it, it shaped his outlook on life in a way that's very functional, not just head knowledge, but very functional. It's down to the core of their being. And that's kind of the idea that Paul has here. Even the way he talks about it, it's not just knowledge, but he says it's spiritual wisdom. Wisdom is something that you apply. Or he says it's all uh, spiritual understanding. There's the idea of discernment. There you're able to use the knowledge to navigate life and to think carefully and live rightly. Use moral reasoning and theological reasoning. It's, it, it's maybe, sometimes I like to think about it this way as theological maturity. So theology is our knowledge of God and the knowledge of God's world and his, his actings. But, but what does it look like to actually be theologically mature? It's not just knowing a bunch of things. Theological maturity, I would argue, involves, uh, one, of course, knowing the right things confessing the right things, having a, a grasp of the core basic elements of the Christian faith, but it's also believing those things, okay? It's actually being deep, having a deep conviction in those things, that those things are true. So you don't just confess those things and then when life comes by and hits you with something difficult, your, your, your beliefs are flimsy because you didn't really believe those things deep down. So not only believing the right things, uh, actually understanding them, but also believing them with deep conviction. But then lastly, it's actually being able to apply those things. It's having discernment to navigate life with those things. And so that's what he's after here, is a, is a, is a functional, a deep-seated functional theology that is rooted, that is well thought out. They're, 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 they're filled with the knowledge of God's will. And even when he talks about the knowledge of God's will here, in light of the book of Colossians, it's not knowledge of God's will necessarily in the way that we speak of God's will, where it's like, what sort of decision should I make uh, today? Should I take this job or that job? And we want to know God's will. In light of the whole book, his, God's will here is likely referring to the gospel. I want you to be filled with knowledge of what God is doing in history to work out his plan of redemption in Christ. As he's going to get into the passage that Sam is going to preach, he wants us to have a Christ-centered perspective that sees Christ at the very center of the universe. And, and, and this shouldn't surprise us, and we see this all throughout Scripture, that Scripture does link our knowledge with our transformation. 
Probably one of the most famous passages is Romans 12, where Paul says, don't be conformed to the world, but be uh, transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what is the will of God. Same language here. Or even in this book, in Colossians 3, we'll see that as, as Paul talks about how Christ is, uh, is making a new humanity remade into the image of God, he says that that happens in Colossians 3.10 by knowledge, renewal in knowledge. And so our knowledge should be like that TED Talk person. It should be like a new operating system that when we encounter the gospel, when we encounter this Christ-centered perspective on the world, it is a new operating system that drives all of our decisions. It's, some, it's like how we talk about in our purpose and pursuits here at Crossway. We refer to it as gospel saturation, that we have a clear sense of what the gospel is, but then it's also saturated all of our thinking and all of our actions so that it bears fruit. And that's what Paul is after here. So, so again, just to recap, he, he, what is he praying? He's praying that they would be filled with that sort of functional knowledge, that fruit-producing knowledge, so that they live in a way that's worthy, fully pleasing to the Lord. And notice, even that language of fully pleasing, it's already taking a knock at the false teachers. He, he uses that language of fully or all quite a bit here, of all spiritual wisdom, fully pleasing, every good work. Nothing's lacking, in other words. This is what you need, the gospel. And he shows us what it looks like with those four participles. So let's look at those now. The first is that he says, it bears fruit in every good work. How does the gospel, how does a Christ-centered perspective uh, bear fruit in every good work? As Colossians 3 will show us, in the gospel, not only is Jesus saving us from the penalty of sin, but he's saving us from the power of sin. He's creating a new humanity. He's reshaping us into a, a new way of being human, as Adam was intended to be all along. Jesus is now the new Adam who is remaking us according to his image. Or as Titus says, the grace of God has appeared, teaching us to renounce all ungodliness. The gospel produces transformed lives. It's not simply the thing that saves us from the penalty of sin, but it also actually implants in us a, a, a renewed person in Christ, united with him in his death and resurrection. And as James says, faith without works is dead. The sort of faith we have in Christ is an active faith. Secondly, he talks about how the gospel, this gospel understanding of God's will, is going to increase our knowledge of God. So when Paul thinks about what does it look like to be a mature Christian, one of the elements is bearing fruit in every good work. The other one is simply knowing God more which I think pushes against a little bit of our tendency to always want some sort of tangible application for something for us to kind of view something as valuable. Paul sees maturity as one of the elements, of course, is those sort of practical good works, but it's also just knowing God. Like knowing the center, knowing the person at the very center of the universe is a good end in and of itself. And so the gospel shows us who our God is. Of course, it, it actually relates us to God. We are actually able to have a relationship with God because our sin is dealt with in Christ. But we actually get to see who God is fully in the gospel. As Jesus shows up in the incarnation and reveals God, the word made flesh, and in his cross, he glorifies the Father. We see God's wrath and his mercy displayed. Thirdly, the third participle we have here is that it strengthens us with all power. 
It's literally, it, 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 it strengthens us with all strength according to God's glorious might. For what? For all endurance and patience. And so the gospel enables us to endure. It enables us to persevere. And likely he has in view the false teaching here, which would threaten our perseverance. It would cause us to go somewhere else. The gospel enables us to persevere because, as Romans 8 says, it holds out this hope to us that no matter what difficulty we're going through right now, it pales in comparison to the hope that is before us, the, the, the glory that is to be revealed. Or as Jesus says in the Gospels, the one who loses their life ultimately will save it. That we can live a life now that it involves endurance, it involves perseverance, it involves sacrifice, because ultimately of the hope of the Gospel that Paul is talking about here, the hope laid up for us in heaven. And then fourthly, he says, when, he thinks that, when Paul thinks about what a mature Christian looks like, the fourth thing he lists here is thankfulness. Which is an interesting thing. Like, just think about if you were, if someone was to ask you, what would you describe as the mature Christian? Would you say bearing fruit in every good work, someone who increasingly knows God, someone who's enduring, and then fourthly, someone who's thankful? I don't know if thankful would make our list. Maybe. And it's, this isn't the sort of thankfulness or the sort of gratitude that our culture likes to talk about today. Like, a lot of people in our culture will talk about just being grateful for things or uh, you know, being thankful for things. But if you don't actually believe in God, you have no one to be grateful to. You have no one to give thanks to. In other words, you're not, if you don't believe in God, you're not actually thankful. You're not actually grateful. You might be happy that things seem to just have fortunately gone your way, but you have no one to actually be thankful for, not just in the good times, but also the bad times. As Christians, we can actually be grateful because our circumstances, we can, we can actually then attribute them to God. We can actually give, we can actually give uh, thanks to God for them. They're not just happenstance realities. Furthermore, the fact that Paul is actually giving thanks to God in his prayer, and he asks that they would have thankfulness in their own hearts, is a testimony to the fact that the gospel is a gospel of grace. You don't thank God for things that you did. And so when the gospel comes to them and it produces faith, hope, and love, and, and Paul responds by giving thanks, it's Paul's way of saying those things are attributed to God. That's something that God has ultimately done in you. And so as we seek to apply a passage like this, I think the, the, the central way that we would seek to live this out as a church is by keeping the word of Christ center in our lives. If it is by being filled with the knowledge of God's will, as I've argued, centered on Christ and what God is doing in Christ in this universe, then the way that we are filled with that knowledge is by dwelling on the word of Christ. As Paul will talk about later in the letter, chapter 3, verse 16, he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. That this is the, one of the ways that we put on the new humanity, that we live out the new creation that God is working in us through Christ, is by then dwelling on the word of Christ. If this is the word that is initially uh, proven fruitful among us, and it, it's the word that will continue to bear fruit among us. We need to be centered on the word as people, not only in our own lives, getting ourselves into the word regularly, but ultimately this is written to a church. 
helping each other center our lives on the word. Letting uh, the word of Christ dwell richly among us, uh, he follows it up with language of, of teaching and admonishing one another, singing songs, hymns, and spiritual songs to one another. In other words, we do that by doing what we're doing right now, by hearing the word preached, by gathering together, by speaking God's truth to one another, by singing songs together that remind us of the gospel. The gospel is what we need to live mature and fruitful lives. We constantly need to be remembered, reminded of the gospel. We constantly need to remind one another of the gospel, and we need to be encouraging one another with its truths as we seek to apply it to everyday life. And so when Paul closes out his prayer here, he goes on a tangent where now he starts to tell us why ultimately he has reason to give thanks. I give thanks to the Father. Why? Because this Father has qualified you, believer, to share in the inheritance of the saints. How has he done that? Well, he's delivered you from the domain of darkness and he's transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That ultimately the only reason Paul can even pray this prayer, the only reason that these things are on the menu, the reason we have the gospel buffet before us is because Christ has won these things for us. He has transferred us from the kingdom, this, this dark kingdom in which we are hostile to God, which we are under his wrath, and now he has forgiven us and he's brought us into a kingdom in which these things are our very inheritance. And this is what we celebrate every week as we practice the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is, is, is a proclamation of vi invisible form, symbolic form, a proclamation of that gospel. That Christ, the body, uh, the body and blood uh, symbol, symboled here in, in the bread and the cup, that it is for you, believer. That God has qualified you for these things. And it's, the, it's God's way of filling us up every week of the knowledge of his will, the knowledge of the gospel.